quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. You have been listening to President Trump uh, and the White House Coronavirus Task Force uh, during their briefing Uh, It has been going on for more than two hours now, so we are going to resume our regular programming. And this is The Lead, and I am Jake Tapper. The death toll from coronavirus globally has now surpassed 100,000, according to Johns Hopkins University. It is more than 101,000, and more than 18,000 of those deaths are in the United States. The death toll at this moment, a horrific 18,022 in the United States. This time last week, that number was about 7,000, meaning since then some 11,000 of our neighbors and friends and family members have been lost in this country just in the last week due to this pandemic. There are 1.6 million cases being reported worldwide. Almost half a million of those are in the United States. In fact, New York State alone now has more reported cases than any other country in the world. That, of course, means you have to believe China and Russia and Iran and other countries that aren't necessarily uh, reliable when it comes to accurate data. That's a huge if. But on that information, New York is at that level. The briefing at the White House uh, that we just cut away from also brought some news that two companies have been tapped by the Trump administration to develop machines that can sterilize N95 masks for healthcare workers. The president and his team also delivered a clear message that mitigation, the steps that the American people are taking, stay at home, physical and social distancing, those steps are working. President Trump pressed on when he might call on the nation to reopen, said it would be the biggest decision he has ever had to make. The U.S. has not yet reached, of course, the deadly peak of the pandemic. The vice president, a man of faith, also cautioned his fellow believers to not pack the pews this Easter Sunday. And to my uh, Christian brothers and sisters across the country, let me encourage you with the words. We should all remember that Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered, there he is also. Generally speaking, that and most of the briefing was quite a contrast from the messages President Trump delivered to the nation on Twitter earlier in the day. While many of you are probably more focused on the number of those who are infected and the number of those who have sadly died, the president was extolling the TV ratings for his briefings and his approval ratings among Republicans, according to some polls. While the public is eager to have the resources of the nation devoted to focusing on beating the coronavirus, President Trump was focused on Twitter on attacking the media and attacking Democrats. Uh, CNN's Nick Watt reports that some health officials across the country are are bracing for the worst this weekend. There are triumphs. Cheers for the recovered. Numbers in New York's ICUs are actually down. For the first time, some encouraging signs. As encouraging as they are, we have not reached the peak. And so every day we need to continue to do what we did yesterday and the week before. And still so much pain. Tara Gabriel's mom now gone, but more than just 
a statistic. My mother was a real person. She was loving and selfless and kind. In New York now, the bodies of unclaimed COVID-19 victims being taken to Heart Island for mass burial. That state now has more confirmed reported cases than any country on Earth, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. But in the current hotspots, apparently fewer people are getting sick. In Washington and all Philadelphia and Baltimore, it looks like their attack rates and the attack rates in Denver and some of these other states that we have been talking about are much lower than New York and New Jersey. In L.A. now, you have to wear a mask in a store. And if you're not covering your face by Friday morning, an essential business can refuse you service. Florida, they're thinking about reopening schools. If we get to the point where people think that we're on the other side of this and we could get kids back in, even if it's for a couple weeks, I, we think that there would be value in that. This particular pandemic is one where I don't think nationwide there's been a single fatality under 25. Called out, he's now walked that last part back a little. So in Florida, we've had no, no fatalities under 25. From tomorrow in Michigan, you can't travel from one household to another. In Illinois, they're warning all big events could be cancelled until there's a vaccine. Months, perhaps even a year or more away. Today's Good Friday, Easter Sunday. We have to stay inside. But in Kansas, the governor is still in a legal battle, hoping to limit church services to 10 people. The need to congregate is important, but not during a pandemic. Just over two weeks ago, the president said this. I'm also hopeful to have Americans working again by that Easter, that beautiful Easter day. Instead, Easter could now be our nadir. According to one model, reported deaths projected to peak nationally at more than 2,200 on Easter Sunday. And our thanks to Nick Watt for that report. Joining me now to discuss this and much more, CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Sanjay, um, first I want to talk about the exchange we just heard uh, between our own Jim Acosta and President Trump, um, where Jim was asking President Trump about the fact that we constantly are reporting, not just CNN, but everyone uh, almost, uh, reporting on the fact that we constantly hear from healthcare workers and from governors that they don't have enough masks. They don't have enough N95 masks. They don't have enough personal protective equipment. Uh, and then there are other needs out there. Uh, President Trump uh, seemed offended by the question and said we should be focusing on the things that they have been able to get to uh, hospitals, to governors, such as uh, ventilators. Where are we right now when it comes to the needs of, of different parts of the country? Um, just factually, I don't, I don't really, I'm not interested in, in the president being sensitive about it. I just, where are we in terms of what our, our healthcare workers need? Well, you know, uh, we, we've been trying to do our own surveillance, if you will, uh, Jake. I talk to people on a regular basis, and it's, it's, uh, it's sort of uh, uneven. There's, there's places that seem to have plenty of uh, these, these supplies. Uh, there's other places where healthcare workers, not only do they not have enough uh, personal protective equipment, there's also concerns that sometimes they can't get tested themselves, healthcare workers. So, you know, um, that's obviously a, a concern. Uh, but there's other places that have gotten a lot of attention, a lot more resources. So I think that's part of the issue. Some of the places that we're not hearing about as much, only, you know, anecdotally, if you will, is because they're not really uh, 
you know, the surveillance is not really reaching those areas yet in terms of PPE, in terms of testing of healthcare workers, but even testing of the general community. So we don't still have a, a clear eye on that other than what we're hearing from these frontline workers who, you know, we have to take them at their word in terms of what they have and what they don't have. So you're still hearing these complaints. That is true. It's hard to characterize the nation this way, but you, you are still hearing these complaints. And the other thing, and you and I talk about this, it feels like every day, it was roughly a month and change ago that President Trump uh, went to the CDC in Atlanta and said everybody who wants a test can get a test, which is obviously not true. It wasn't true then, and it remains untrue today. Now, what the vice president announced, I think it was yesterday, uh, or maybe it was President Trump himself, uh, was that two million tests have been done in this country. Um, but I thought that at this point, according to what the White House said, we were supposed to be in the 20 million tests having been done at, at, at around this time, as opposed to 2 million. I'm grateful that 2 million tests have been done. I'm grateful that it's an improvement on what there was. But don't we need to be like in the tens, if not hundreds of millions uh, now, and if not now, soon? Yeah, we, we needed, we need needed, need, and will need mass testing. I mean, I think that's one, one thing we've heard over and over again. You know, Dr. Fauci describes it as we need millions and millions of tests, you know. Uh, two million is obviously a significant improvement uh, per capita, I mean, you know, which is important. People say you're using per capita sort of uh, to draw a distinction. We are drawing a distinction because the, you, you need a sample size. The sample size is, if it's bigger compared to the population you're testing, it has more significance. Uh, we don't we don't still know, for example, what percentage of people out there uh, might might have been exposed to the coronavirus but never shown any symptoms. You know, these asymptomatic uh, folks out there who may have still been spreading the virus. We still don't have a clear idea on that. People are still discussing just how transmissible has this been in the United States. We don't know. One thing that I think is interesting, Jake, and important to distinguish complete country testing 325 million people i don't think anybody is suggesting that but mass testing is different that's when you not only test people who are coming in with symptoms but you're also doing surveillance in the community really getting an idea of just how widespread this is i think if you were to ask anybody up there right now how widespread is this this infection the coronavirus in the united states we, we, we could not answer that question right now, you know, uh, several months in. Yeah. Um, maybe it's fair to say we, we, we uh, couldn't answer it regardless, but we'd have a much better idea of what we're dealing with. Right now, it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty opaque. Yeah, and on that subject, uh, both Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks uh, said uh, that we could see a large rollout of antibody tests in the coming days. Tell us what that means. Well, so there's two different types of tests, and, I, and I'll explain this to you, but it's important to note that, you know, still, there's, there's many folks out there who haven't been able to get the virus test, but they may think that they have, they think maybe I was exposed. I just don't know. Was that sniffle? Was that significant illness, something more serious earlier? I don't know. So here's how they might find out. According to the Coronavirus Task Force, more than 2 million tests have now been performed in the United States. And yet there are still people who need to be tested, such as healthcare workers, who can't get one. It's part of the reason there is now so much interest in a different kind of test, an antibody test. Dr. Fauci told CNN on Friday it's coming soon. I'm certain that that's going to happen, that within a period of a week or so, we're going to have a rather large number of tests that are available. But what exactly are antibodies? They are proteins in the immune system 
that develop days after someone has been infected. And it's the antibodies that make someone immune to becoming reinfected. It means two things. You were previously infected, and you are now likely to be protected, at least for a while. We think it'll be a tool to help us get people back to work. It'll be additional information because, as you know, if you have an antibody, that means you were exposed and have recovered from it. Um, That, with the information about diagnosis, should help. That's why public health agencies around the world want these antibody tests, because it could help some people get back to their daily lives. You remember the swab test we're all familiar with? Well, that tests for the virus itself, specifically its genetic material. Problems are, first of all, at some point after you recover, that test will be negative. And secondly, a lot of people have had trouble getting that diagnostic test in the first place. The antibody test is more definitive. There are only a few reasons you would have antibodies in your blood. You got someone else's antibodies by an injection of their blood. You got a vaccine, which teaches your body to make antibodies. Or you were infected. The antibody test requires a sample of your blood and this strip, which has proteins from the virus on it. If your blood reacts to that strip, it means you have antibodies in your blood. And I think really being able to tell them the peace of mind that would come from knowing you already were infected, you have antibody, you're safe from reinfection 99.9% of the time. And so this, I think, would be very reassuring to our frontline healthcare workers. Another benefit of antibody testing, surveillance. In places like Miami-Dade County, Florida, Santa Clara County, California, and Telluride, Colorado, they have already started using antibody tests to get a better sense of how many people, many of whom will be surprised to learn, have already been exposed to the virus. Whoever volunteers is getting tested twice. And, and the purpose of that is to see who seroconverts and develops the antibodies, meaning who was actively infected during this period of quarantine. A CDC spokesperson told CNN the agency has already used these tools to, quote, monitor contacts of infected people and to identify individuals who, due to mild infection, may have not known they were infected. Getting the antibody tests up and running, much like the tests to detect the virus itself, have been challenging. In a rush to get these tests to market, the FDA lowered the regulatory standards, and what followed were a lot of unreliable and inaccurate tests. There's a series of antibody tests out there that have not been validated. Some of the tests that may be available on the Internet may have very low sensitivity and specificity and give you a false reassurance that you either give you a false positive or a false negative, implying that you may be protected. And Sanjay, um, we heard President Trump yet again uh, tout his optimism about the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine. Mm. Um, you've learned that there are countries that are not only not using the drug, they're advising against using it to treat coronavirus. Ex- tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's several countries out there that uh, have been using this medication for a couple of different reasons, uh, to, to treat patients who are already sick and possibly as prophylaxis, so giving it to people who aren't sick in the hopes that it'll actually prevent them from getting ill. Guidance was just sent out, I'm reading here, from, to almost all the hospitals in Sweden 
where they've directed all the, all the doctors over there to stop using the anti-malarial drug to treat COVID-19. That's specifically what this guidance is. Why they said was that, the, you know, they've been doing this for a while, and basically they've not seen any uh, evidence that it offers any benefit and yet there's real concerns about side effects. Uh, different side effects, uh, mild side effects from cramps, more serious side effects like peripheral vision loss, and then the most serious that they're concerned about is the impact on the heart, uh, where it can actually cause these heart rhythm abnormalities. Uh, we dug into their, their, some of their data. It doesn't look like anybody uh, died as a result of these side effects, but they were quite worried, uh, enough to send out this guidance essentially to all the hospitals in Sweden saying, Stop doing this. Just do it as a clinical trial. You can keep studying it, but don't just give this uh, because the doctor decides to give it. Uh, we think that's too dangerous. Hmm. All right. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks as always. And you, you should be it. sure to listen to Dr. Gupta's podcast, Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you access your podcasts. It's a must listen. Minutes ago, President Trump said it will be the biggest decision of his life but he wants to reopen the economy soon. I'm going to talk to one expert who wrote a proposal on how to do just that, a former member of his administration. Plus, Vice President Pence now encouraging worshipers to avoid large gatherings as we head into Easter Sunday. But there is a battle underway in one state. I'll speak to the governor ahead. Just minutes ago, President Trump said that ultimately the decision to keep the country open or closed is in his hands. I will say this. uh, I want to get it open as soon as we can. We have to get our country open, Jeff. You say, sir, what metrics you will use to make that decision? Uh, The metrics right here. That's my metrics. That's all I can do. I can listen to 35 people. At the end, I've got to make a decision. It's the biggest decision I've ever had to make. I want to bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins. And Caitlin, President Trump was asked specifically about this theoretical May 1st reopening date and if that's realistic right now. What did he have to say? Yeah, the president seemed to say that, yes, he does want the economy open. He says he's going to make decisions based on his health advisors there that were in the room with him, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, and that he doesn't want to open up the country before it's safe to do so. But, Jake, the president is dealing with two different factions here, and he's not really giving any indication of what metrics specifically he's going to be using to make that decision based on how many people can be tested, how many tests are being administered a week, what the attack rate is in certain areas. Instead, he just basically said... He is going to be the one making the ultimate decision here. And, of course, we know this comes as there are many discussions underway inside the White House right now, including with the president, about reopening the U.S. economy starting next month. And, Jake, they're even talking specifically about May 1st. The president said they are going to be announcing that second task force on Tuesday. That's the task force that's solely focused on reopening the economy. So it certainly is something that the president is discussing. And, Jake, what was also notable is just how hesitant the doctors in the room were to talk about reopening the economy next month. You heard Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci both get up there. They said we are not seeing the peak yet in the United States. And also neither of them really commented on that new New York Times reporting about those projections about what could happen and how cases and infections could spike if those social distancing guidelines are let up after 30 days. So basically what you're going to see play out in the White House over the next two weeks or so before we get to that end date is a difference between the economic advisors who want the president to get the country open and the health advisors who still do not think it is time to do so yet. And Caitlin, President Trump was also asked about how some of his allies uh, and supporters 
have been attacking Dr. Fauci uh, and whether or not they were wrong to do so, um, and the president uh, refusing to answer that directly, praising Fauci, but not condemning these wild accusations coming from the far right. Yeah, he offered no criticism of the people who have criticized the doctors that have been leading him through this and advising him on this. He only complimented them, but he did not say uh, that they should knock it off or that they should stop criticizing people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. And you could even see that when people like when Dr. Burks was answering a question about the models, uh, that she had a sense of, you know, I've answered this question a lot of times before, as she personally has faced criticism over people saying she's putting too much faith in the models that the president is there being presented with. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Joining me now is uh, former Trump administration FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who's been a a leading voice uh, about the coronavirus outbreak since January, warning the Trump administration uh, back in early February. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Um, So let's talk about the president's desire. All of us, we have a desire to, to go back to normal Um, How widespread do you think testing needs to be before it's safe to begin a process of getting back to normal in some way? Well, look, I think the bottom line is we're not going to have the testing in place that's optimal in terms of where you want to be when you start returning people into closed spaces, returning people to work. So that's just the reality. Hopefully the fact that we're heading into the summer and the summer should be somewhat of a backstop against transmission of this virus as we head into June, July and August That's going to help us. But I think the reality is we're going to be returning people to work in May and June before we have all of the capacities in place that we want to in terms of testing. In terms of the number of tests you want to perform, as we're coming out of this epidemic, there's still going to be a lot of cases accruing. So you want to have enough to keep up with the cases that are still accruing and do pretty aggressive surveillance in the community to make sure new clusters aren't forming. So we're talking about the capacity to do millions of tests a week, probably several million a rule of thumb might be that there are 3.8 million encounters with the primary care system every day, every week. You might want to test that level of people. You might want to test upwards of 3.8 million people every week, people who are presenting to the healthcare system for whatever reason, just swab them for coronavirus for a time being to try to detect outbreaks while they're still small. Why do you say the summer will be a backstop? backstop? I thought that the latest guidance uh, from the National Academy of Sciences was that uh, this summer is not going to have a, a favorable effect on on the virus that it actually the warm air doesn't actually have an effect. Well, we don't know for sure. Coronas typically don't circulate in the summertime. So there is a seasonal aspect to coronaviruses generally. This one's so novel that it's likely to continue to transfer into the summer. But droplet transmission becomes less efficient in the really hot humid months. And also epidemiology of spread changes because people are outside more, they're not inside. So you do get different spread of viruses in the summer. And typically what spreads in the summertime are enteric viruses and not not necessarily viruses like this that are respiratory viruses. But we don't know whether or not this is going to have a seasonal component. The one thing I would say, though, is that when you look at where this has become epidemic, it's the northern hemisphere. The southern hemisphere has not had epidemic spread yet. And the risk is that when they go into their winter, they, too, are going to suffer epidemics of this. And then we'll want to come back here in the fall. So, Dr. Gottlieb, you've written a proposal on how to reopen the country, for want of a better term. What does it look like? Uh, And uh, is President Trump listening to your ideas? Well, I've certainly made them available to the White House. What we're saying in the plan that we put forward was that you want to see a sustained reduction in new cases 
And then you want to wait an additional two weeks after you see a sustained reduction in new cases. We should start seeing a sustained reduction in new cases in most parts of this country in the second half of April and towards the end of April. So if you follow the timing that we outlined, that would put you in mid, mid-May when you'd start to contemplate bringing people back to work. But the other thing we say is that you should have widespread screening in place. You should have the ability to do point of care screening in the community. And right now, screening is largely confined to hospitals. We don't have the capacity to broaden it. So we do need to continue to ramp up screening. I think that's going to be the big variable. I think we're going to be taking a step towards reopening aspects of the economy before we have the optimal level of screening in place. And that's the risk that we're going to take. But you think it's worth taking that risk? It's not worth waiting until we have the right uh, amount of testing out there or the right amount of screening out there? Look, it's going to be it's a it's a careful balancing. I, as a public health official, I'd like to have the optimal screening in place. I'd like to have the hospitals have residual capacity. I'd like to you know exercise more caution. But we also need to recognize, quite frankly, that there are public health implications to what we're doing here as well. The longer we keep the country closed, uh, there's a lot of morbidity and mortality that's accruing because of that. People who aren't presenting for prenatal care aren't presenting with mild strokes or mild heart attacks are staying at home. There's going to be deaths and diseases as a result of the fact that we've engaged in what we've done. So it's a careful balancing. I'd like to see more screening in place. Um, I'd especially like to see more screening in place for the fall. And so that's another concern. We're worried about May, but we also need to worry about August and having in place what we need as we go back to school in September, as we reopen residential campuses, that we can have much more widespread screening and hopefully one or two effective therapeutics to deal with this virus. If we don't have that by September, we're going to face a lot of risk in the fall that we have outbreaks and even the risk of another epidemic. And Dr. Gottlieb, when you talk about screening, are you talking about the coronavirus test that is out there right now, that there have been about two million of them done? Are you talking about antibody tests, which detects whether or not you were exposed to the virus and developed antibodies? What exactly kinds of what kinds of screening are you talking about? I'm talking about tests that can diagnose active infection. The serology tests that you talked about, the tests for antibodies, they're useful for public health decision making. You might find a community that's been heavily exposed to the virus. And in that case, you might make a decision if there's an outbreak there not to implement stay at home orders versus a community where very few people have been exposed to the virus. So the antibody tests help inform public health decision making. But when we do those tests on a mass scale, they're called serology tests. When we test the population broadly to see who's been exposed to this and developed antibodies, I think we're going to find it's a very small percentage, anywhere from one to five percent of the total population. Now, there's pockets where it could be higher. Let's say Queens, New York is probably a higher percentage, but it's going to be low overall. And even when you look at professionals who've been exposed to this virus, TSA workers, uh, people who work on checkout lines and grocery stores, healthcare workers, people who touch a lot of people as part of their job, even there, I think you're going to find that the level of exposure is probably about 10%. It's not going to be very high. So that's not, there's not this mass population of people who now are immune to this virus and can return to work safely. It's a rather small percent. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, thank you so much for your expertise. Really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back soon. Thanks a lot. There's a battle happening in one state over Easter. Should large religious gatherings be allowed to go on during this pandemic? We're going to talk to the governor of that state, Kansas. That's next. And this just in, the University of Washington's model, frequently cited by the White House, has now just revised its projections. They're now predicting Today will be the peak in terms of daily deaths from coronavirus. It was previously projected to be this Sunday, Easter Sunday. 
Today, Vice President Pence and health experts are pushing religious leaders to not hold large gatherings, especially on Easter. In Kansas, at least three coronavirus clusters are tied to church gatherings with at least two deaths resulting. The state's Democratic governor, Laura Kelly, issued an executive order limiting religious gatherings to no more than 10 people. But a seven-member body within the Republican-controlled state legislature called the Legislative Council revoked Governor Kelly's executive order. And now she is taking the matter to the Kansas State Supreme Court. Governor Laura Kelly uh, joins us now. Governor Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Kansas House Speaker Ron, uh, I think it's pronounced Brickman, told the Washington Post he and his colleagues would support your order, even calling it a good public policy, if you could assure them that no one would face criminal penalties for violating the order. Uh, What would your response be to that? Well, you know, when I originally um, issued my first executive order, my stay home order, we did exempt churches. Everybody else was under this 10 person limit, uh, socially distanced. Uh, And if there were any enforcement, it would be a class A misdemeanor. Uh, So what happened, though, is we saw what uh, what went on in Kentucky, what went on in Louisiana around church services. And then we had actually four clusters here in the state of Kansas and four deaths uh, that have resulted as uh, from church gatherings. So I felt it important uh, to make it clear that churches would be included in the, the limit of 10 with the social distancing. Uh, when I did that, I had talked to all of our faith leaders all across the state, all denominations. All of them were on board with that. After the Legislative Coordinating Council revoked my executive order, I again talked to the faith leaders. They were still supportive of that, and and they continue to be. Um, We we took this thing to the Supreme Court, uh, not so much because we want to argue with uh, the Legislative Coordinating Council on criminalization or non-criminalization, but the fact is the Coordinating Council really doesn't even have the authority uh, to revoke this order. Only the full legislature can do that. But when I think about the criminalization, you know, I, I, I compare it to, you know, we've got a, a world-famous basketball team here in K- with KU, and if the coach of that team were to say, you know what, a KU basketball game, you know, trumps public safety and piled people into Allen Fieldhouse at the University of Kansas. Would we stand for that or would we want that coach brought up uh, and, and charged? Probably brought up and charged for putting so many people's health and safety at risk. So, what would be the difference uh, in a church setting? So, I mean, I guess one of the arguments might be, just for me to play devil's advocate here, is there's no constitutional right uh, to basketball, but uh, freedom of religion is in the Bill of Rights. Uh, And people might say that, you know, that right is one uh, that should make any lawmaker uh, wary of uh, imposing any sort of guideline or restriction on people gathering for reasons of faith. I certainly understand your motivation, but that might be what somebody would say in response, and and what would you say back? Well, I would just tell them that in Kansas, uh, many people see basketball as a religion, uh, so there's that. Uh, But it's also because we're, you know, this is not an effort to... 
take the right to practice one's religion away. This is really all about the health and safety of Kansans. And I don't care what religion they are, I want them all to be safe. Uh, and that was the only reason uh, that we went ahead and pulled the exemption for churches. Governor Kelly, there are more than 1,000 confirmed cases uh, in your state. Uh, and obviously uh, there are a number of individuals, uh, more than 50, who have died as a result of it. Do you think that people in Kansas are not taking the threat of coronavirus seriously enough, or is it just a handful of people? How do you think Kansans are responding? No, I think Kansans have responded extraordinarily well to this. You know, we we acted pretty aggressively, pretty quickly. Uh, you know, we shut our school buildings down for the entire year. We put the stay-at-home order in place, and we're actually seeing Kansans uh, really abiding by the instructions. Uh, we're seeing the reduction in movement, which is the indicator uh, of how much people are abiding by the stay-at-home laws. And so, you know, we're very pleased uh, with what they're doing. You know, what we what we have experienced here are some somewhat what happened in Washington state with in uh, the nursing home. We have had some clusters uh, in our nursing facilities. Uh, we had the, the four clusters in the church facility that I talked about. Uh, and, you know, Kansans are Kansans. People are people. We're going to have a spread like we have every place else. But we think we've really been able to manage to mitigate it and to and to keep the curve, uh, you know, from peaking too high uh, as we go uh, forward. So we're comfortable. We don't think we've reached the peak. We think it'll continue to rise uh, for the next week or two. Uh, but we expect uh, that we'll get to that point and then we'll start to come on down. Uh, but we're, we're very comfortable with mm. how Kansans have reacted to this. They've been very responsible, uh, everybody across the board, including our faith leaders. All right, Kansas Governor Laura Kelly, thank you so much. Stay in touch with us. Let us know if there's something you need that you're not getting enough uh, of from the federal government or from anyone else, and we can help shine a light on it. And, and, and God bless and good luck to you and the good people of Kansas on this uh, Easter weekend. Thank you very much. Take care. Coming up, coming up, celebrities, powerful people, somehow able to get coronavirus tests when many are still not able to, and that's not where the coronavirus wealth divide ends. We'll explain next. Stay with us. The coronavirus pandemic has exposed a wealth divide in America. New York, Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, all Victims are examples of the same story. All major metropolitan areas with higher concentrations of the coronavirus and higher concentrations of low-income neighborhoods. But, as CNN's Tom Foreman reports, the wealth gap and this virus are not exclusive to big U.S. cities. One-third of all U.S. residents sick enough from the virus to be admitted to hospitals are African-American, way more than double their share of the population. That is the suggestion from a small early sample of cases studied by the CDC. It's not definitive, but it implies in cities such as New York, Milwaukee, New Orleans, Chicago, and Detroit, the pandemic is particularly threatening black communities. This hits home for people. I've lost 15 people in my life to this virus here in the city of Detroit. Yes, the virus can be lethal to anyone, but... Why is it three or four times uh, more so for the black community as opposed to other people? 
The answer, more African-Americans are living in poverty than almost any other group as a percentage, often in densely populated cities with inadequate nutrition and education, less insurance and access to medical care, leaving them more likely to develop those related health issues proving so deadly. We know that underlying conditions like hypertension and diabetes and heart disease This virus is particularly hard on. The Surgeon General suffers from some of those problems. He's only 45. I represent that legacy of growing up poor and black in America, and I and many black Americans are at higher risk for COVID. What's more, as skyrocketing unemployment makes free food lines explode, poor communities are certainly growing poorer. And unlike many people in better paying positions, even those low-income folks who can hold on to their jobs often can't do them from home. They're working a lot of the service industry that uh, unfortunately is still dealing with the public and the grocery stores and some of the service industries that are still out there doing the job we need them to do. And so they're bringing that home to their families. It's not new. Studies have shown in almost every type of calamity, poor communities are less prepared, less able to compete for resources, less quick to recover. Whatever the situation is, natural disaster, Hurricane Katrina. The people standing on those rooftops were not rich white people. Why? Why is it that the poorest people always pay the highest price? Again, COVID-19 is an equal opportunity threat. Anyone can get it anywhere. But this early evidence seems to suggest, once again, it may be the poorest people who are being hit the hardest and who may have the hardest time recovering from it in the long run, too. Jake? All right, Tom Foreman, thank you so much. Dozens of economists say that the United States is already in a recession. If so, how long might that last? To that story next. Welcome back. According to 45 economists, the United States is already in a recession with economic activity severely restricted because of the pandemic. The survey from the National Association for Business Economics found that the United States could recover by the second half of 2020. Let's bring in Richard Quest, CNN business editor at large. Richard, good to see you today. A source familiar with President Trump's conversations told CNN that uh, the president is talking more to his Wall Street friends and their arguments, listening to their arguments for reopening the economy. Uh, Yet, of course, the medical professionals on his task force worry about restarting too soon. What do you think about the idea of a gradual reopening? It's going to be a gradual reopening. That is the way it will have to be. If you read, for example, J.P. Morgan's report this morning, it talks about us starting to reopen in June, but all the forecasts that they're putting forward do say that this will have to be gradual because the risks and downside otherwise are too serious. So it won't be off to the races. There'll be no sudden grand opening. It will be bit by bit very much like we're seeing in Europe at the moment in places like Copenhagen with certain key stores at key times. And speaking of J.P. Morgan, uh, that uh, report today, they they have a stunning prediction. Economists at J.P. Morgan say that this month's unemployment level in the United States could reach 20 percent. They also said the U.S. economy will shrink by 40 percent in this quarter, the second quarter. Shrink. Do you you think that's a, a realistic economic forecast? 
Absolutely. And the reason is because we're starting to get hard economic data. The unemployment claims that we've been seeing are the first real numbers by which economists can extrapolate and actually tell you what it's likely to mean. In other words, if these people are claiming unemployment, these fewer hours are being worked, the economy will be shedding jobs and losing product productivity. And that's why, Jake, we can say now it's going to be a recession that will be deeper, sharper, probably two to three quarters. But the growth will start again around about June. And, and Richard, quickly, the president said a great deal uh, at the press conference about how he's asking other countries to cut their oil production. He says there's just too much of a glut right now uh, of oil. Explain why that uh, is a bad thing in the views of some people. Because you've got a very large oil industry in the United States that is hurting badly by the fall off in oil. They want to get the price back up again if they can. The president is balancing oil producers and consumers. All right, Richard Quest, thanks so much. Stay safe, my friend. Tune in Sunday morning for CNN State of the Union. My guests include Dr. Anthony Fauci and Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. That's at 9 a.m. at noon and noon Eastern on Sunday. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Stay, stay strong, stay healthy, and, and please stay inside. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.